0: Well, Father, we come to you this morning and I ask that you would uh, be faithful and show up and help us understand these three chapters. I know you're here. I know you care. I know you love us and that your Holy Spirit is here. And we need you to take these three chapters and apply them to our lives. Help us to see you. Uh, Help us to see you through your eyes and not our own. And Father, we thank you for the knowledge that you are sovereign, that you are holy, that you are in control. When we're surrounded by things that show and seem to indicate that everything's out of control, Father, we can trust you. We can rely on you. And so this morning we ask that you would take your word through your Holy Spirit and apply it to our lives as your, your children. And we pray this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. So we're gonna, I'm going to do the uh, insane and take on three chapters of Romans. And uh, there's a reason by the, for that, uh, Method to My Madness. Uh, I do think these three chapters go together, and hopefully you'll see that as we move along. What we're going to do today, guys, I want to warn you, is we're, we're um, moving into the deep end of the pool. And um, you're going to have to take off your floaties. Um, this, is, this is deep stuff. It's, it's difficult stuff. Uh, it's controversial stuff. Uh, but it's necessary. And it's in the words, so we're going to deal with it. But you know how in a pool, you can, you know, when you're learning to swim, you move from the shallow end, and you start inching your way to the deep end, and there's that, that point where it just drops off, and you're kinda, you're, you just your head's above the water, and then your foot reaches that point, and you drop off, and you go under. That's where we're going today. Um, now, some of you are going to get irritated. Um, that's okay. I'll give you Logan's email address, and you can, you can call him. <laughs> Some of you are going to get angry, some of you are going to get confused, some of you are going to get frustrated, there's going to be all kinds of emotions, some of you aren't going to care at all, Uh, and you're going to go, why are we even studying this? Um, Here's here's what I want you to do, I want you to uh, be as open-minded as you can, I I want you to uh, hear what God would have you hear, Uh, hopefully this is not coming from me, but this is coming from the Word of God, and I want you to, if anything else, I want you to wrestle with the concepts that we're going to talk about this morning. Uh, because we need to, and I want you to give God a chance to really reveal himself to you this morning and over the weeks ahead. I want you to study this. I want you to research it. I've given you an article out there by John MacArthur. You can pick that up. Um, That'll probably help you a little bit as well. So three chapters, and we're going to start with the end of these three chapters. So we're going to be in chapter 11. I'm not going to read these three chapters. I know I've been reading everything the last few weeks. We're not going to do it this morning for obvious reasons, But I want to start in verse 33 of chapter 11. And this will help, I think, set up where we're going. He says, this is kind of a doxology. He says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? So he... Gives this incredible kind of a doxology, this uh, tribute, um, worship to God according to who God is. And he says, oh, the depth of the riches. And then he ends it with, for from him, catch this, from him, from God, through him and to him are all things. So in other words, everything comes from him, through him, and everything eventually goes to him. Um, And so this is, I think, the best way to take on chapters 9, 10, and 11, because he says the wisdom and knowledge of God, how rich, and that really that word and where it says riches and and wisdom and knowledge should be um, of the, it's the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. God is incredibly intelligent. I I think nobody's going to argue that, I don't think. Uh, God is incredibly knowledgeable. He knows all things. He's aware of everything going on. He's not bound by time. He doesn't have to worry about future and thinking about, gee, I wonder what's going to happen because he already knows. And so he says, how deep is the wisdom and knowledge of God? How unsearchable is His ways, And he goes, how unsearchable his judgments. And this is really interesting. This word in the Greek literally means condemnation of wrong. That God sits over us as a judge. Now, some of us don't like that image of God, but he is our judge. And as a judge, a judge condemns. A judge has to execute judgment on those who come before him. So it's a condemnation of wrong, the decision, whether severe or mild, which one passes on the faults of others. And he goes, how unsearchable are his judgments? And sometimes we struggle with, well, that's just not fair. How can God do that? Well, he's God. God can do whatever he wants to do. And, and as God, because he's just, and you always have to keep God in the context of his total character. He's loving, he's just, he's holy, he's righteous. He can be wrathful, he can be vengeful, but it's it's... It's never out of context. It's never just anger for anger's sake. There's a reason behind his anger. There's a justness to everything that he does. And so he goes, how unsearchable, how I can't even fathom his judgments. Sometimes we don't get it. You know, when you see something happen to someone you know and love and somebody who's a very strong believer and suddenly they, uh, like Mike Matthews when he contracted a brain tumor, and you, you go, why? That seems so unfair. It doesn't seem right. But how unsearchable are the judgments of God. His ways are inscrutable, he says. See, God's way of thinking, God's way of feeling, God's way of acting, the things that God does are beyond my capacity to comprehend. And we so want to understand God, put God in a box, Manipulate God to where we can understand him. And I think that's the drive behind most of what you see as idolatry in the world. It's man attempting to create a God they can control. But see, our God is unsearchable. He's unknowable to a certain degree. We can't really fathom. We can't understand what he does and why he does it. And where we run into trouble is when we start trying to explain away certain things about God because it's uncomfortable for us. Well, my God would never do that. Well, maybe you got the wrong God. Maybe you have the wrong view of God. Maybe you really don't understand God. So, today we're going to take on three incredibly difficult topics. They shouldn't be, but they are, and they're difficult only because of our perspective. They're not difficult from God's perspective. I don't think they were difficult from Paul's perspective. He didn't seem to have a real problem with them, but we really do struggle with these things. The first is going to be his sovereignty. That's chapter 9, God's sovereignty. The second one, chapter 10, is man's responsibility. And we're going to see that there seems to be a conflict, a paradox between those two things, God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. God's control and man's free will is how it normally comes out. And the third one's going to be chapter 11, which is Israel's destiny. All through this book, he's talking to Jewish believers and uh, Gentile believers living in Rome, attending these house churches, and he's talking to the Jews about how the people of Israel had been chosen by God, gifted by God, given to the covenants of God, and yet they had rejected God. And yet there's a destiny. And as human beings, we sit there and go, well, why even bother with them? They screwed up. They crucified the Messiah. Why even bother? And so we struggle with why in the world would God even be faithful to them when they've been so unfaithful to him? So these are the three things. And we talk about God's sovereignty. It's going to lead us into the topic of election. Why? Because that's what chapter 9 talks about. God chooses. Now, when I've brought this up before in in Band of Brothers, I've had guys just light me up and never come back because they hate this topic. They they struggle with this topic. What are you telling me God chooses? No, I chose God. Well, that's going to lead us into man's responsibility. Yeah, you did choose God. You have to believe. Man must accept. But Paul seems to indicate that, but God chose you. Well, wait a minute. You can't have it both ways. Well, no, God can have it both ways. And the scriptures teach both ways. And we'll See what that means. And then with Israel, as far as their destiny, he's going to restore them, even though they don't deserve it, even though they rejected him. So three chapters with three really incredible, tough topics, and yet I think they're incredibly important for us to understand as believers in Jesus Christ. We can't ignore them. I would love to just go from chapter 8, which is a wonderful chapter about the presence of the Spirit of God, and then just go all the way to chapter 12. Let's just skip election. Well, I can't because God didn't skip election. He had Paul put this in the scriptures. Ephesians 1 deals with it. It's all throughout the Bible from beginning to end, as you'll see. So we got these three tough topics. How are we going to deal with them? But before we deal with them, I want to ask these, these questions. And here's what I want you to wrestle with this morning. How big is your God? How big is your God? If you've created a God that you can control, your God's not big enough. If, if you sit there and go, well, I don't like this about God. Well, then he's no longer God, he's your God. He's your image of God. How big is your God? Secondly, is he the God of the Bible or one of your own making? So you can tell me I don't like this concept. I don't like the idea of election. I don't think it's something I resonate with. Well, okay, then you go back to the Scriptures and you show me where it's not true. But don't just tell me you don't like it. Deal with the Scriptures. What does the Bible teach? Are your beliefs about God based on scripture or tradition? Well, I was told, I was raised in my denomination, yeah, I don't really care. I was raised Baptist. It, I don't really care. What does the Bible say? And to know what the Bible says, what does that entail? You've got to go study the Bible. So if you walk out of here this morning and you go, I don't know that I agree with this or I don't like it, I don't, that's great then you go study the scriptures and you decide what God's telling you about this topic. Let God teach you. Do you have your God fully figured out? I hope not. I really hope God's bigger than your capacity to comprehend him. And do you have a diminished view of God? See, all of this is important because when we study these passages, what's going to happen in your spirit and my spirit, and believe me, all week long as I've been preparing for this, I'm I'm wrestling inside going, Lord, do I have to do this? Can I teach something else? Can I do a lesson on hell? You know, (laughs) this this is hard because my human nature says this does not seem right. This does not seem fair. It does not seem the way it should be. But how big is my God? What does my God have to say about these things? So we're going to go back to chapter 9. Remember, we looked at those verses at the end of chapter 11, that doxology about God, how big is God, his, how in, unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable are his ways. He's hard to really understand. We don't have a full capacity and a comprehension of who God is. And so we're going to go back to chapter 9, and he says, Paul's basically saying, I I really want everyone to come to Christ. And he says in verse three, I could wish for myself, speaking about the Jews, his brothers in the flesh, his Jewish brothers. He goes, I wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, the Jews. In other words, he's saying, I wish I could go to hell and they could be saved. That's how much he cared about his Jewish brothers. He wanted them to come to Christ. He wanted them to have salvation, and and this can't happen. It wouldn't happen. He wasn't going to lose his salvation so they could get saved, but he was willing to at least think that, that, you know, I I would rather I go to hell and be cursed eternally so that they could be saved. That's how much he cared about his brothers. He longed for them to be saved, but what was the reality? The majority of them had, had rejected the gospel, Now, there were Jewish believers in the church in Rome. There were Jewish believers in cities all across the world at that time. But the majority had rejected Jesus Christ as their Messiah, right? That's the reason he was crucified. They didn't want him. They didn't accept him. And so he's going to ask a question. So does this mean the gospel has failed? If the majority of the Jews at the time when Paul wrote this had rejected the gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ is the gospel A failure. And he's going to say no. And we got to go back to what we read just a second ago. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. See, it would be real easy for Paul and others to look and go, man, there aren't a whole lot of us. The majority of our people have rejected the Messiah. And every time we bring him up, they abuse us, they accuse us, they ostracize us, they persecute us. Has the gospel failed? Well, his ways are beyond my ways of comprehension. Isaiah 55.8, my thoughts are not your thoughts, God says. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. We operate differently. I'm God, you're not. And sometimes you're going to struggle with how I do things, but you know what? Trust me. Rely on me. Has the gospel failed? Paul's going to say no. No. The gospel does not failed. He goes on and says, this is really interesting. You've got to keep, keep in mind he's talking to these Jews within the church there, these Jewish Christians. He says, not all who are descended from Israel belong to, belong to Israel. And, and that's going to kind of knock their world crazy and they're going to go, well, wait, wait a minute, what are you talking about? Not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Not all are children, are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. What's he talking about? You remember the story of uh, Isaac and Ishmael? Isaac was born to Sarah. Ishmael was born to her handmaiden. One was kind of Abraham and Sarah's idea to bring in the promise. Hey, why don't you go into my handmaiden? Uh, she'll have a baby and he can become the heir. That was their way of helping out God. But God says, no, 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 that's not how it's going to happen. It's going to happen through Sarah. Even though she's barren, you're old, she's old, she's barren. We're going to do it my way. And Isaac was born. And he says that not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. And he's differentiating between Ishmael and his descendants and Isaac and his descendants. There's a, there's a choosing going on. There's something going on that God chose to, to do it his way. It isn't going to be this way. Even though they were born from Abraham, came from his seed, the lineage of Ishmael are not considered his children, God's children. But Isaac are. Well, then he goes on, and he goes a little bit further in the historical context, and he starts talking about Isaac. And he says, he had children. He had two sons born to Rebecca. And Rebecca is gonna have these two sons, two twins, and they're gonna be born. And the younger is gonna lord over the older. God is choosing, God is making a choice. God is saying this one over that one. Everything in that society said the older, when he comes out firstborn, even though they're twins, he came out first. Esau should be the inheritor. He should get the title. He should get it all. But God says, no, that's not how it's going to happen. The children of the flesh, it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise. Back to Ishmael, children of the flesh, that's not how God chose to do it. Isaac, children of the promise, That's how God chose to do it. One group gets chosen over another. God selects, God elects, God does what he wants to do. We don't understand it, we don't get it. If you're Ishmael, you're going, hey, this isn't fair. This is the way of God. This is the will of God. And then he talks about Rebekah and these two children born to her, Jacob and Esau, though they were not yet born, still in the womb, they had done nothing either good or bad. They couldn't, They're, they're in utero, they haven't been born yet. One gets chosen over the other in order that God's purpose of election, there's the word, since chills up our spine, might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told the older will serve the younger. And then this statement that we all struggle with, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. All that simply means is I'm putting my favor on Jacob And as a result, my favor is not on Esau. He's choosing two twins born to the same parents, and God says, I'm choosing the younger over the older. I'm choosing Jacob. Not because of anything Jacob had done, not because of anything happening in the womb, not because he was special, but God says, I'm choosing this one over this one. And everything in our human nature says, that is not fair. That is not right. And we struggle. And he says in verse 14, what? Is there injustice on God's part? See, he knows what you're thinking. He knows what his audience is thinking. What shall we say to God? Is is there injustice? God, this is not right. This is not fair. Esau is the older. He should get the inheritance. Why did you do it this way? Is there injustice? Is God not right? Is God not holy? Is God doing something wrong? And what's his answer? By no means. It's the answer he gives to every one of these questions all throughout the book of Romans. By no means. What, are you nuts? Are you crazy? Have you lost your mind? What are you thinking? No. And then he's going to go back to Moses. And you see what he's doing? He's going back through the history of the Israelites and he's saying, look at what God has done since the beginning of time. He has been a God who chooses a God who elects, a God who determines. He says, I said to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And again, what, what do you, what's going on in your spirit? Hey, wait a minute. That is not fair. I thought God was compassionate to all people. But he says, I will, God, will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And all throughout the story of the Exodus, what is he? He shows mercy on the Israelites, and he shows no mercy to the Egyptians. Why? Because he's God. He has a purpose. He has a plan. He's doing something that we don't yet understand. The Israelites didn't understand it. They didn't get it yet. In verse 16, he says, so then it depends not on human will or exertion, and this is really important, because what are we? We are self-made men. I am where I am because of me. Now, some of you can take pride in that. Some of you go, I'm here because of me. We're self-made men. But he says, it doesn't depend on human will or exertion, but on who? God. At the end of the day, it depends on God. Everything depends on God. Even your salvation depends on God. But yet, I was raised with an attitude, with an understanding, with with a belief that, no, it's up to me. It's my choice, my decision. I chose. I walked the aisle. I prayed the prayer. I did this. I, 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 me, me, me. And he says, no, it's not based on human will or exertion, it's based on God. And this is hard. This is difficult. It goes against our human nature. He goes on, verse 18, God has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. What? God hardens? That's not loving. And again, you got to sit here and go, okay, who is God? Why does God exist? What is God trying to do? Who am I to question God? He's God, I'm not. He has mercy on whomever he wills. He hardens whomever he wills. And then he, goes, he asks the question, why does he still find fault? What's he what's really asking there? Who can resist his what? Well? well, if God is the one who decides, if God is the one who shows mercy, if he's the one who hardens, then why does he hold anybody responsible for whether they choose Christ or don't choose Christ? Isn't that the natural response? Well, if he's the determiner, it's, it's what usually gets referred to as fatalism. Well, if God's in control and he's the one that makes the decisions, then what role do I play? That's chapter 10. Man has responsibility. And I know what's going to happen this morning is you're going to walk out of here going, He didn't resolve the, the paradox. He didn't resolve the conflict. And you know what? You're right. I will not resolve the conflict because it's a mystery. It's something God has preordained. God has predetermined. I don't fully understand it. I can't fully explain it. And every commentator you read who talks about election will say at the end of his commentary and everything he's written, it's a mystery. God chooses. Man believes. It's it's something we can't understand. But he says, who are you, O man? Listen to this. Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? God. Reminds me of uh, the book of Job. Who are you? Were you there when I created the earth? Were you there when I put the stars in the sky? Were you there when I hung the moon and the sun? Were you there? Who are you to ask me about what I'm doing? It's like when your three-year-old comes in and, and, you know, Dad, what are you doing? What what do you you mean you're going to spank me? Who are you to spank me? And what do we normally say? Because because I'm dad, I, I, I can do whatever I want. And to a certain degree, that's God. God says, who are you to question me? Who are you to answer back to me? Will, will what is molded say to its molder? Why, why have you made me like this? Man, I've asked God that all the time. Why'd you make me like this? Why am I not six foot four? Why'd you make him six foot four? He's wasted it. Why does he have all the hair? What, what, what's up with this, God? Why, who are you to question God? And we do it all the time. Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Does God not have the right as God to do whatever God wants to do without you questioning him as if you know better? You know, God, you know, I'm thinking about this. The way you did this, this doesn't make sense. The way you made the world. this doesn't make sense. Who are we to question God? And you know what the real problem is in this whole thing? That word. That's That's how Paul refers to you and I. You're a lump. And if I walked up to you and said that, you'd punch me. You're just a lump. You worthless lump. But isn't that what we are? I mean, at the end of the day, that bugs me that, that I'm referred to by Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and therefore from God, I'm a lump. I'm a lump of clay that God does with as he wants. And, and especially my American work ethic goes, no, 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 no. I'm nobody's lump. I'm, I, if anything, I'm my lump. And I'll do with me what I want to do with me. But see, your view of God's too small. You've become your God You've diminished the view of God. I I think back to Genesis chapter 3, the curse upon Adam. He says, you are dust, and to dust you return. You're nothing more than dirt that God took, formed, and breathed life into. God can do with you what he wants. God can do with anybody what he wants. Why? Because he's God. Now, if you want to sit there and start going, well, that's not fair... That's not right, that's not just. Well, now you've become God and you're judging God and you're determining what you think is right. Now, if you can go back to scripture and you can prove that that it's wrong, that's one thing. But don't let your common sense, don't let your human intellect drive this. It's either gotta be the word of God or you're gonna have to just deal with it. That God is in control. I don't have any right to question God And he says, what if God, desiring to show his wrath, and God does have wrath, and to make known his power, and he does have power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath. In other words, who is everybody that lives in the world ever since Adam? Vessels of wrath. Destined to what? Wrath. Destined to hell. Condemned because of sin, both inherited sin, imputed sin, and committed sin. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All men are vessels of wrath prepared for what? Destruction. Where are all men going who don't have Jesus Christ, their personal Savior? Where are all women, all children who don't know Jesus Christ, their personal Savior, where are they going? They're destined for destruction. Prepared by God for that purpose. And again, you may go, I don't like that part about God. I don't particularly like it either but it's, it's biblical, it's real, it's true. There are those who prepare for destruction. But he says, what if that is true, but it's in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy? In other words, in this room, there are those of us who have placed our faith in Jesus Christ as our personal savior, and we are now vessels of mercy. God has shown us mercy Because we're special? No, because we lived a certain way, because we were born into a certain home in a certain country, we grew up in a certain kind of denomination or church? No, because he chose to show mercy on whom he shows mercy. And what if he endured vessels of wrath? I've said this over and over again, but at any time along the way, God could have said, I'm done, this is over, it's history, everybody's fried. Now, he did it once, didn't he? He spared Noah and his family, but what did Noah and his family end up creating? More of the same problem. At any point, God could have said, it's done, it's over. Everybody is destined to destruction. But what did God do? He endured that in order that he could bring Christ and show mercy to some. Is everybody saved? No. Will everybody be saved? No. And that bugs us. But what we have to wrestle with is that if you are saved, if you are in Christ, it is because of the grace and mercy of God. He says, what if it was all in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has, again, there's the same word prepared, predestined, determined for what? Glory. If you're in Christ today, Where are you going? Ultimately, heaven. Why? Because you're special? No. Because God showed you grace, God showed you mercy. And and guess what? There may be a guy sitting next to you who has not placed his faith in Christ who is not going to end up in glory. And see, where I know guys get twisted off on this and go, well, that's just not fair. That's just not right. How come you and not him? I don't know. And we're going to see in chapter 10, that does not dissolve me and, and give me the right to not share the gospel because at the end of the day, that's the tension. God chooses. I have to believe. I also have to share. Both are prepared one group for destruction, one for glory. And then he says, quoting Isaiah, Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only what? Only a remnant of them will be saved. Now, I've never as a Christian struggled with that concept. I never have. I can read the Old Testament. I've never struggled with he chose Jacob over Esau, um, Isaac over Ishmael. I've never really struggled he chose Abraham. I've never struggled that not all Israel will be saved. Some will, some won't. There is a remnant. The story of the remnant is all throughout the scriptures. I've never struggled with that. But somehow when it comes to that God will not save everyone, but he will save some, I start to wrestle. I'm okay that he chose Jacob, but I'm not okay that he chose this person and maybe not this person for salvation. See, then we start to wrestle. We start to kind of gag on it and go, well... uh, I have a problem with that. And this is going to lead us into chapter 10. In chapter 10, chapter 9 is about the sovereignty of God's, God's sovereignty. Chapter 10 is about man's responsibility. Because if you're going to sit out there and say, well, if God does all the choosing, if God determines, if God has already decided from before the foundation of the world, Ephesians chapter 1, if he's already determined who's going to be saved, then why do we even bother? Why share the gospel? That's one of the key arguments you hear about the idea of election. If God's already chosen, why bother? Because God told us to share the gospel. That's the command. He says, brothers, this is really interesting to me. Because he's just talked about election, choosing. And now he says, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, the Jews, non-believing Jews, is that they may be saved. And that creates a paradox, right? What is it? God elects, he says. God chooses. God predetermines. But Paul is praying for their salvation. Wait, Paul, why are you even praying? If God's going to determine who it is, if there's only a remnant they're going to get saved, why are you praying? What's the, because God has commanded us to pray for the lost. God has commanded us to share the gospel with the lost. I want to read you something from uh, Tony Evans. I'm not alone. I'm not a lunatic. I'm not a heretic. I'm not alone in this. Listen to Tony Evans. The Bible's teaching on election seems to fly in the face of what we think is fair and right. For example, how is it fair that God has elected some sinners to salvation while passing over others? And how is it fair that these non-elect sinners are held accountable for not being saved? If God so loves the world, how can he choose some sinners and not others? The Bible says that God chose or elected us in Christ before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1.4. Election is based on God's eternal purposes and his prerogative... To choose, not on our behavior. Paul confirms this in Romans 9 as he discussed God's choice of Jacob and rejection of Esau. Then he goes on. Some people think the fact that election is not based on human behavior or response to God is a problem. Since it appears to make his choice arbitrary. But in reality, locating the motive for election in God's eternal, unchanging plan, rather than in man's temporal, changing actions, removes it from the category of arbitrary. Remember, too, that all have sinned and are deserving God, of God's wrath. So the fact that he chose to rescue some is an act of grace in the first place. The point is that God is not elected believers in the abstract. He is not sitting in heaven deciding whom he loves, whom he does not love. The Bible is unmistakably clear that God loves all people. The cross of Christ was so powerful that it dealt with the sin of Adam and rendered the whole world savable so that anybody who believes in Christ will be saved. Wait a second, that doesn't make any sense. The doctrine of election must not be made to detract from God's love for all sinners or the lengths he went in order to save every lost person. But at the same time, we know that not everybody is saved, right? And we read in Scripture that God elected some in Christ before the world was created and that those who are not saved will be judged and condemned for their sin. God's purpose to call out a people who are in Christ is the key because when it comes to mankind's condition, there are only two people as far as God is concerned. The first and last, Adam. In God's mind, all people are either still in Adam, that is in their sin, or in Christ. Those who are in Adam are lost and condemned. Those in Christ are elected to salvation. Now, this is where the mystery of God's work and election manifests itself. God's offer of salvation is valid to all, and yet those who respond do so because they are the elect of God before the foundation of the world was laid. And those who do not come to Christ are blameworthy because the Bible never says that people are lost because they're not elect. The lost are lost because they refuse to believe. These two truths may appear to us to be mutually exclusive, but the Bible teaches both and holds both in perfect balance. Your head's about to explode, right? You're like, I don't get it. It doesn't make sense. But again, he's God. He has a plan. There's so much about his plan that I don't understand. I don't get it. He says, everyone in the end, for Christ, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who does what? Who believes. There's a responsibility that you and I have. I had to accept Jesus Christ as my Savior. I had to believe. He talks about it on and on in this passage. Look at this. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that he raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Belief, salvation. If you confess, you're saved. He goes on, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. There is a human responsibility to accept. See, election does not, election doesn't encompass everything. God chose, but man has to accept. The best way I can explain this, and he goes on, he says, call, believe, believe, heard. See, What does he tell us in these verses? You have to share the gospel in order for anyone to be saved. Why did Paul pray? Because he wanted to see the Jews saved. Why should I share the gospel? Because we want to see people saved. I have no idea who God has chosen, neither do you. That doesn't absolve me, free me from sharing my faith, and it doesn't absolve that person from accepting the gift. It's a, it's a mystery, it's a dichotomy, it's a paradox, and the best way I can illustrate it is train tracks. There's two train tracks, right? you got to have two train tracks. One of them is God's sovereignty. God chooses, God's in control. One is man's responsibility. Man has to believe, man has to accept. And they run side by side, never seeming to touch, but they go to the same destination. They're both biblical. They both run side by side, and you got to have both. You can't run a train on one track. There'll be a wreck. You'll never get to the destination. See, the scriptures never say, try to determine whether you're elect. doesn't say it. I I don't walk around a room going, hmm, he looks elect. I'm not going to bother with him he doesn't look elect. I'm definitely not going to bother with him. Oh, well, I'll go back to doing what I want to do. See, the scriptures don't say that. What does it say? Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. What does it say? But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Every person who is elect has believed. Everyone before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1, 4, that God has chosen has had to believe. It's the way God has designed it. Do I fully understand it? Do I get it? Can I explain it? Obviously not, because you're looking puzzled right now. It's a mystery. And that leads us then to chapter 11. Chapter 11 is Israel's destiny, it's the third issue, the third big problem. God's in charge, God's in control, God is sovereign, God elects, God chooses who will be saved. Chapter 10, man has a responsibility. We have to share. We have to tell. We have to believe. And then, chapter 11 is what's he going to do with these stubborn Israelites? There are those today who teach that he's done with the Israelites. They're toast. The church has taken over. All the promises to Israel come to us. It's called replacement theology. I do not believe in it. This church does not believe in it. We believe God is not done with Israel. Why? Because the scriptures teach it. He's not done. Has God rejected his people? Again, by no means. What are you nuts? What are you crazy? How do you get there? That's, that's illogical. No, he's not, Paul says. He says, look, I'm, I'm a believer. I'm part of the remnant. He's not rejected his people. He's still got Jews that he's saving, and there's a day coming when he will save many more. He's not done. He's not finished. He says, so to at the present time, there's a remnant. Paul's part of that remnant. The people he's writing to were part of the remnant. Chosen, there's that word again, elected by grace. See, what does Paul know? All around him are Jews who are not accepting Christ and will die in their sins. But he's still sharing. He's still praying. He's still going around sharing the gospel. So what then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. Yeah. there's There's something going on. There is a chosen by God. There's an elect by God. Paul's one of them. The people he's writing to, the Jews in that church, are part of that group. And the word he uses there, it means it's God picked out, God chose, but it also means the person chosen. There are within that church, the ones he's talking to, the elect. But does that mean God's done with every other Jew, that God's not going to do them any kind of favor? He's not going to redeem anymore? No. He says that God has given them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see, ears that would not hear. Does that seem fair? No. But you know what? If that had not taken place, we wouldn't be here. If the Israelites had not rejected Jesus Christ, the gospel would not have gone out to the Gentile world and we wouldn't be here. Now it seems very fair because I got to hear about Christ. And so for whatever reason, God chose to, down to this very day, Paul says, there are still people who are unable to hear, unable to comprehend, don't get it, don't see it, aren't accepting, they're hardened, they're blind, they don't get the truth of the gospel. But then he talks about, you know what? You, Gentiles, were grafted in, and you're wild olives. Do you think he can't, he doesn't have the power to graft in natural branches, those Jews who right now are rejecting him? Yeah, God grafted you in. He can certainly re-graft back in His own people. He says in verse 23, Even they, the Jews, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. God is not done with the Jews yet. God is not rejecting the Jews yet. God is going to do something with the Jews yet to come. And he describes it in verse 25. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. What I believe that means is, guys, there is a number... If God chose before the foundation of the world who will come to Christ, there is a number of Gentiles who will come to Christ. God knows that number. I don't know what that number is. And when that number is in in completion, I believe the rapture of the church takes place. And then what happens? The hardening stops. The Jews will be once again shown grace and mercy by God. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. This will be my covenant with them. I will take away their sins. God is not done yet. See, right now it seems unfair that he's hardened the hearts of so many who are Jews, who are people of God, and it doesn't seem right. It doesn't seem fair, and yet we're the recipients of that. The gospel has come to us. But he says, as regards election, their election, they are beloved for the sake of the forefathers, they have a calling. There are those of the Jews who will come to faith in Christ. We were disobedient at one time. We were shown mercy. They have been disobedient. They will be shown mercy. See, God is sovereign. God is in control. Man, I, I know this is hard. I know this is difficult. I, and, and you're going, what the heck difference does it make? It changes everything about who you think God is. See, I know there's some of you out there right now, you're so twisted off about the election. What in the world is going on? This is like living in a sitcom. Our world, our, our country has lost its proverbial mind, and you're anxious and you're angst and you're wondering what's going to happen. Is your God in control? Is your God in control? See, election is wonderful. If you see it as, my God has a plan, his plan is perfect, even to the point of he knows exactly who is going to be saved. It's not a case that God, in his wisdom, looked down through the corridors of time and went, oh, he's going to become a Christian. Oh, he's going to become a Christian. Oh, she's going to become a Christian. No. God had already determined who he would choose. Not because you're special, not because you're great, but out of his infinite mercy. Because where was everybody going had he not chosen? Hell, condemnation, death, separation. And yet God, in his mercy, sent his son to redeem those he had chosen. Jesus himself said, I have not lost any of the ones you have given me. Can I fully explain it? No do I fully comprehend it? No, because his ways are inscrutable. His judgments are beyond knowing. So here's what I want you to talk about around your tables. And I do not want to see fist fights break out. Okay. What do you think it is about the doctrine of election that causes so much anxiety? I I know you're just like all tense. Did I drink too much coffee? No, it's the topic. Why does it cause anxiety? Why does the concept of God choosing to show mercy on whomever He wishes make us so dadgum uncomfortable when it really should make us feel incredibly grateful? Why did God, and, and this sounds so wrong coming out, why did God choose me? I have no earthly idea. I wouldn't have chosen me, I wouldn't choose any of you. But He did. He did. And there are others out there that are chosen. And guess what? They need to hear the gospel so that they might believe. How will they believe if they don't hear? So let me pray for you. And I'm just going to ask God to really speak to you through one another. Father. This is a hard topic. It's a deep topic. It's, it's, it's unfathomable in, in terms of how deep it is. But, Father, I pray that we would not argue. I pray that we would not debate with one another. I pray that we would just simply say, help us understand. And at the end of the day, not understand election, but understand you. You are great. You are mighty. You are God. We are lumps of clay in your hands. We have no right to question you. We have no right to demand of you. We have no right to judge you. But Father, we need your help. Help us to understand that you are in control and that you have a purpose, you have a plan. There's there's a day when all the Gentiles are going to come to faith, will have come to faith, and then you you will send your son back and he will take the church, he will take us to be with him, and then you will usher in your final plan for the people of Israel. You are in control, your plan is perfect, and we can rest in that. Bless the time around the tables, Father. Bless these men. Encourage them, strengthen them, challenge them. Take them into the deep end of the pool. And I pray this in Jesus Christ's name, amen. Have fun.